Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Tortoise. Hello, and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. Together, we try to make sense of the world by looking at trends and the numbers that explain them. Well, this week, it's our last episode, I'm afraid, of the year, because Christmas is fast approaching. And we thought, therefore, that perhaps, given that most of us do in some way or another celebrate this Christian festival, we talk about religion. Are we still a faithful nation or are we a nation of atheists? What do we think about religion and uh, how have our attitudes changed over time? Oh, and by the way, who goes to church, chapel, mosque, temple, etc.? We're also going to look at whether religion still has an impact on policy. How do questions of church and faith change what governments do, particularly in education. But before that, let's talk about faith. Now, I read a stat, John, that this year the UK plans to spend over 27 billion on Christmas presents in the run-up to Christmas. So we yep. are still a nation that cares about Christmas. Yep. But how much is it still a religious festival for us? Um, well, we're certainly no longer, obviously a religious country. British Social Attitudes, most recent survey, 67% of us say we never darken the door of a place of religious worship. And a half of us say that we don't identify with any kind of religion. So we are now predominantly a secular society, both in terms of uh, what we uh, what our practice and also uh, what we identify with. And how much is that a change from your childhood, John, uh, <laughs> or mine in the mid eighties? I can I can manage your childhood, uh, <laughs> Rachel. Uh, British Social Attitudes, which again regular listeners will know, I have some connection with, has actually been asking people about religious identity and church attendance all the way back to uh, the first survey in 1983. So we can get to Rachel's childhood. Um, so then it was already the case. We were pretty secular. 51% of us never went to a place of religious worship then compared with the two thirds now. Um, uh, but at that point, only around three in 10 of us said we didn't have any religious identity at all. Um, as I said earlier, it, it's now a half. Um, so the truth is, you know, there is a decline. And in fact, the decline goes back, back further than that. I mean, one statistic we, we can quote, if you go back to 1851, on any particular Sunday, a half of the country will be found in a church. And of course, in those days, it was a church. I'm actually or a surprised chapel. it's that low. 
Well, I um, assumed it would be well, well on any Sunday a half of there. So in practice, therefore, you know, the proportion of people who are going regularly would be greater. But the truth is, we've we've been a long-term decline. But even more recently, we've seen a decline. And you know, it does therefore mean if you look particularly at you know how many people go to church once a week, which, as it were, if you are religiously faithful, if you're a Muslim, you go on a Friday. If you're Jew, you go on a Saturday. If you're a Christian, you go on a Sunday. Then you know, in the 1980s, it was already down to about. 13%. Most recent British social attitudes has it down to about 8%. And indeed, that last couple of surveys done uh, in the wake of the pandemic has shown a somewhat lower number, around 7 or 8%, than the 11% that we had back in 2018. And data from uh, the Church of England has collected is also corroborates this, which is that uh, attendance out of religious services has not fully recovered to pre-COVID levels because, of course, the churches were closed uh, for quite a lot of lockdown. Somewhat controversially, indeed, a case in Scotland uh, that wasn't decided until the lockdown ended uh, said that actually the uh, government had been wrong in doing that. But uh, it certainly has affected religious attendance yet further. But, of course, the, the, the long-term decline is a much bigger one. I mean, it, it's... Pretty similar in Scotland. It's now also Scottish social attitudes. About 8% of people go to church. It was probably true 40 years ago that Scotland was more likely to go to church, but those days seem to be over. And what is certainly very, very striking when you look at identity, both in England and in Scotland, it is the established church that people have stopped saying they identify with and frankly going to either. So back in the 1980s, 40% of people across the UK as a whole or across Great Britain as a whole said they were Anglican. So that's Church of England in England or Church in Wales in Wales and the Episcopal Church in Scotland. It's now down to just 13%. And meanwhile, in the proportion of people who who, um, identify with the Church of Scotland, which of course is Presbyterian in Scotland, it's gone from just over a third at the beginning of the century down to around 11%. And in part what's going on there is that once upon a time, you know, if a survey researcher would come knocking on the door and say, you know, ask lots of questions and they would say, well, what religion are you? Kind of by default, they would mention the established church. Well, people have now stopped mentioning the established church. They're now just up front and say, no, I don't have any religion. One of the things that I thought was interesting from a King's College London study, so obviously deeply inferior to British social attitudes, but nevertheless, was that while, as you say, religious attendance has gone down and actually it looks like belief in God has gone down very significantly, Mm -hmm. the percentage of people who say they believe in life after death hasn't changed very much since the early 1980s. And, And one of the sort of fascinating things in this study is that uh, people are less likely to believe in heaven, but no less likely to believe in hell. So there is a split between a going to somewhere religious, going to a church or a synagogue or a mosque and belief in God, but also a difference between belief in God and a belief in some sort of afterlife. Absolutely. Indeed, British social attitudes data corroborates um, exactly that story. I guess the answer to in part will be is that even some people, quite a lot of people of religious persuasion don't necessarily 
take the concept of hell as opposed to the concept of heaven. But here we're getting into deep theology. I mean, the proportion of people who say they don't believe in God full stop is about a quarter. But then there's then another quite substantial body of people who say, well, I don't necessarily believe in God, but I think there's some kind of higher spiritual power. Or frankly, you know, we don't know. So I'm agnostic, right? So you're right. I mean, and, and I think certainly one important thing to say is that while it's true that confidence in religious organisations has gone down a bit in the course of the last 20 years, but we're not necessarily antagonistic to religion. So it exists in our society, but for the most part, although some of our minority religions not quite so clear, we're reasonably tolerant. And one statistic from America is that around 92% of US adults were aware of reports of uh, abuse by Catholic priests. About 80% thought that they were still ongoing problems. And perhaps most significantly, 27% of US Catholics, and we should come on to the US in a minute, Mm -hmm. uh, said that they had gone to mass less often, partly in response to these reports. It's obviously also been a huge issue in Ireland. But given that there's been a decline in religious attendance across countries and a decline in belief in God. There was a sort of brief blip up in the post-communist countries, but mostly now it's declining. Across at least Christian religions, it seems unlikely that specific cases of abuse are the biggest driver. This is a general phenomenon. And even in the US, the historically sort of the historic outlier where religion was a huge part of life, politicians really um, proclaimed their religion when they were campaigning, you're starting to now see this same large decline. Indeed. I mean, one of the arguments that used to be used about the United States was that, you know, whereas quite a lot of um, European countries, including uh, the different parts of the UK, had an established church um, and that that perhaps meant that they weren't necessarily have the incentive to respond to changing beliefs, values and ideas and uh, ways of celebration that that their um, potential congregations wanted, because the United States has a much more pluralistic provision of religious observance, uh, that created a system of competition, a bit like the market, um, and therefore you got much more diversity and therefore more people were still attracted to religion. But you're right. It seems that in the United States now also things are in decline. The truth is, right, this is a generational phenomenon. I mean, again, this is, to give you some idea, amongst those people who were brought up as an Anglican, only around a half themselves now uh, identify as Anglican and, you know, even fewer of them actually turn up. Catholics are rather more successful, but not that much more successful at carrying on uh, their sense of identity. Um, And certainly Catholicism has not declined to anything like the same extent as both Anglicanism and Presbyterianism has. Um, But uh, the group that's above all, it's still actually conveying the adult uh, religious identity onto the children are Muslims and some of our other minority faiths. Um, and indeed, you know, the one group in our society which has clearly counteracted the trend of declining religious identity observance is particularly Muslims. Muslims now around 5% or so of our population in terms of identity. It was only around 1% uh, back uh, 40 years ago. But this is a generational phenomenon and, you know, lots of theories out there about why, but essentially affluence, greater education, perhaps therefore people a greater sense of security with longer life 
and that therefore, as a result, perhaps the need for people for some sense of comfort, belief that however difficult life is at present, there was an afterlife that promised something better, that, you know, maybe all of that uh, ha now has less attraction. But certainly, whatever the reason, uh, the churches, certainly in this country and lots of other countries, are pretty much struggling uh, to keep uh, the faithful on board. And your point about um, Muslims being a, a substantially higher percentage now of religious people, or at least religious attendees, is yep. interesting because, again, globally, it does seem that Muslim countries are a slight exception Indeed. to this trend of a decline religion. And even when you control for economic development, which tends to be a big driver of how religious a country is, Muslim-majority countries tend to be more religious and culturally conservative. And I guess to your Catholic point, when you when you look at the nations that are most likely to say, people in them are most likely to say they believe in God, they almost universally either seem to be very Catholic or Muslim. Yeah, um, indeed. We should mention, by the way, before we move on, there is, of course, one part of the United Kingdom where it's not necessarily the case that uh, people are as observant as they were, but we're going to church in particular once a week is still pretty common. It's Northern Ireland. It's about a quarter of people in Northern Ireland who say they go once a week. But even there, you know, uh, two in five say, no, 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 never. So it's not that Northern Ireland is immune from the, long from the longer term decline, but it's still coming from a much uh, higher base. But certainly we're going to be celebrating Christmas, most of us. But for most of us, it is going it's to be going a secular. secular celebration. There aren't going to... Um, more people do turn up to midnight mass or the watch night service than probably go to most services uh, other than Easter. But there'll still be very, very much a distinct proportion of our population. Your point about Northern Ireland, I think, is interesting because it, it speaks to the integration of religion and politics. Obviously, in Northern Ireland, religion and politics are very closely intertwined. And it seems to me one of the tensions in England now, possibly the UK, is that we have not really had a separation of church and state. We had a rather unusual reformation. Our monarch is the head of our state uh, religion. And yet people's adherence to that religion, particularly the Anglican religion, has almost entirely fallen away. And one expression of the integration of state state and church, which would be anathema in, say, the United States, is the prevalence of state-funded faith schools, Indeed. particularly in England. And now their origin... So many, how many are there of these, Rachel? So this was actually a, a, a surprise, uh, even to me, I'm ashamed to say, because I spent a lot of my career working in education. But 37% of the schools in England are faith schools and almost all of those are either Church of England, which is over a quarter of schools, or Roman Catholic, which is almost 10% of schools. So maybe I think this point, what do we mean by a faith school? Well, that's a great, great question. Um, well, first, just before I, I talk about that, just to explain the numbers, and people will be familiar with this because many of their children will have attended them or, or are attending them. A very high proportion of these schools are primary. There's this phenomenon often discussed in newspapers of people uh, sending their children to church or going to church religiously until their kid hits reception age so that they can get into the coveted church school, uh, which is often perceived to be better academically or in discipline terms. But 
the Church of England and the Catholic schools, although they are state-funded, are run by the religious institutions who have a statutory role and within them. They, and they all of them, even those that are still following national curriculum, still have a degree of freedom with respect to things like uh, religious education and also moral education. Yes, although that freedom is less unusual now than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago because freedom from the curriculum has become a much more common factor among schools. Indeed, and, and, and so, and so, and so the, the so-called faith academies as opposed to the faith schools, the ones at academies who don't follow the national curriculum, have even more freedom now. Absolutely. So, yeah, so yeah. one of the sort of two interesting uh, experiences that I had when I was working... Uh, in government over the last 13 years on education was one um, with the advent of free schools. So for listeners who are not familiar with this, this was the idea that new schools could be created within um, many constraints, but with more freedom on the national curriculum in accordance to demand from parents in an area. Yeah, so, so I could create a school and the government would help fund it. Exactly, provided that you fulfil various criteria. Yeah. But one of the consequences of this was that lots of minority religions, which had hitherto not had any state schools or many state schools, Sikh, Muslim, Hindu, a few Jewish schools, saw this as an opportunity to create schools in their community. And it, it resulted in a huge debate about religious selection in schools because the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church do select on the basis of faith. Many of them will only accept you if you or, or you, they will put you top of the list if yep. you can demonstrate they religious They give you priority at least, yeah. But what had been a sort of accepted and traditional um, part of education in England became much more controversial when people started to think about integration in the wake of migration and whether they were happy to have very high-scale um, religious selection, particularly in areas where there were already big splits in the population by religion. And Northern Ireland was the scare story mm -hmm. in people's heads because there had been huge segregation. So there ended up being this slight fudge uh, for free schools where half of places could be allocated according to faith and half had to be allocated according to other criteria such as distance. It, it's a true fudge because, of course, some kinds of faith schools are likely to only have applications from a certain kind of faith, at least for now. Um, but it caused massive ructions with both the Church of England and the Catholic Church because they wanted to maintain control. And, and was because this particularly, they see was, this was this as particularly Muslim schools that was particularly a source of controversy? Unquestionably. Right. Um, partly because of volume, as you say, they are a very uh, significant percentage of... Um, both an increasing percentage of population, but also uh, religious adherence in the country. And so they ended up with this sort of semi-fudge. But uh, we have now got several more Muslim schools, more Jewish schools, more Sikh schools, as well as this huge number of Church of England and Catholic schools in the country. And they remain beloved by parents, but a deeply controversial yep. factor in the school landscape. Now, yep. it's you will know better than me, John, because when you work in Downing Street on schools, of course, you don't get to have anything to do with Scottish schools, which <laughs> are entirely controlled by the Scottish government. But in Scotland, it's slightly different, isn't it? So the crucial difference in Scotland is that whereas in England, it's predominantly, although by no means exclusively Anglican, uh, in Scotland, it is almost, almost uh, e exclusively Catholic. But you're absolutely right that, you know, both sides of the border, you know, this is uh, controversial. And I can understand 
um, why, in a sense, you're, in, when you were in government, you got in a bit of a tangle on this. Because, you know, on the one hand, if you take that broad principle of parents having the right to choose their school, which both New Labour and you know, the Conservative Liberal Democrat Coalition both endorsed, you know, about 80% of people uh, across all four parts of the UK su uh, supported that principle. And I did some work on this back, uh, back in the, uh, around 2010. But only around 30% of us are in favour of religious schools and basically you do get a clear divide amongst those people who don't identify with the religion only around one in five of them think that religious schools are fine whereas you know if you are a catholic uh, you know between half two-thirds think that religious schools are a good idea. Uh, Protestants, it's somewhat less, but it's still higher than amongst those that are identity. And, and of course, you can see why the Catholic Church, in the face of declining attendance, is deeply committing to maintaining its sure, hold on well, these it's schools. True of all these schools. The, the, yeah. the reason why all of these religions want to have their schools and particularly are concerned about to have the right to, uh, therefore, pursue a distinctive, um, distinctive curriculum with respect to faith and aspects of morality is they're looking at this as a way of trying to achieve the generational transfer of identity and practice from parents to children. But as we've said earlier, even with these schools in place, it's not necessarily that successful, although you know, it has been more successful uh, for Catholics and Anglicans. So the Church of England provides a very substantial educational service to a country, England, that for the most part now largely ignores it as a religious it's institution. But, and of course, the popularity of the schools is to do with you know, somewhat controversial aspects about the ways in which they seem to get better results rather than necessarily anything particularly to do with their religious character. Another um, aspect of this was even more controversial when I was in government, which is the, the so-called supplementary schools. So ah, you Dave, must explain. Ah, this is a new one on me. Uh, David Cameron in 2015-2016 uh, uh, announced that he wanted to regulate religious supplementary education almost entirely because there was uh, a minority of um, children, mostly Muslim, but some from other religions, including Judaism, who were attending after school for multiple hours, mm -hmm. often attached to their local mosque, not always, or, or synagogue, not always, um, uh, religious education. And there was a concern on the one hand about the quality and safeguarding of many of these schools, which were relatively so, 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 unregulated. So, so, let's just put this in, into a language of the 1950s, which I'm <laughs> to do. In effect, what you're talking about is the functional equivalent of what we used to call Sunday schools for the Christian well, churches. Well, this yeah. was the debate. Yeah. This is absolutely right, because Sunday schools, and I, I, uh, uh, I'm Jewish, John, so I went to Haida, which is the equivalent of Sunday school, is uh, where you turn up once a week for... A few hours yep. and you learn about your religion yep. or in my case you fail to learn how to read or write Hebrew but you sort of pretend to for a few hours a week and that's generally accepted and there was no issue with this what was what was happening was that you were getting something much more intense than that people were going every day or several times a week for multiple hours and there was relatively little sight about what was happening in these institutions. And it was obviously very controversial because it speaks to people's faith, it speaks to ethnicity, um, and it also spoke to um, the concern the Conservative Party has often had about integration of places and whether this was going to um, keep people within their own um, community and religion and stop them integrating with others. But 
it ran amok precisely because of the Sunday school. So the Church of England mm -hmm. was absolutely furious at the idea that a general purpose piece of legislation or regulation mm -hmm. would mean that inspectors were running through their Sunday schools or casual church-related activity for use. And so it completely fell apart because the government was, I think probably rightly, not willing to say, well, we, we only care about Muslim supplementary schools, for example. Mm -hmm. We don't care what Christians do. That would obviously have been unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But the Church of England, which remains a huge force and is integrated into um, the state, was not willing to countenance regulation and inspection of its own Sunday well, this, schools. This, this, this is always a tension that's going on in the relationship between the established church and the state. Because on the one hand, the church gets a lot of benefit from being, in it, being the established church, but it always wants to shy back back from being uh, uh, being regulated and of course you know the the you know, that then particularly becomes a, a tension uh, and, a, and an argument and a debate when we get to things like if we move on to the moment about you know whether or not uh, the church of england should or should not marry uh, people in same-sex relationships which is something actually the church can't do unless parliament were to give it subsequent power to do so that's where where we're currently at legally but yes this is uh that, and of course the, i mean the other issue which you know again we've seen I mean, some members of the Conservative Party in particular seem to be rather upset about their behaviour and the fact that we still have a, a group of lords sitting in, uh, uh, bishops sitting in the House of Lords, uh, which uh, causes both, has long caused arguments among, amongst non-conformist uh, Christians who felt it's extremely unfair that uh, the Church of England should have these bishops. And meanwhile, now the fact that the bishops are sometimes criticising what the government does, e.g. currently in the moment, some of its immigration policy has led to even some Conservative MPs saying, what have we got these, these well, bishops is, inside the House? This they, is fascinating it, it does in give them very itself, particular voice. isn't it? Because there are, there are 26 bishops of the Church of England who sit in the House of Lords. After most of the hereditary peers have obviously left the House of Lords, there are still some. And normally a Conservative party wishes to conserve. It rather likes this tradition. It wouldn't have been the one that removed the hereditary peers. It wouldn't be the one that tries to uh, remove the bishops. But it is unquestionably the case mm -hmm. that in the last few years, when uh, Justin Welby or equivalent stands up and starts to talk about policy, people within government shudder because there is a big difference between... Um, their views and their rhetoric and, and occasionally the reality of their policy on issues like immigration or asylum or benefits and the stated position of the Archbishop of Canterbury or other bishops uh, And of the course, the, the, just to underline the tension, right? I mean, there is still a bit of a link in our society between people's sense of religious identity amongst those who still have one and how they vote. So nearly a half of Anglicans identify as conservative, whereas uh, amongst Catholics, the Labour Party is clearly more popular, about 40% to 25%. And of course, in something that's been particularly resonant because of the uh, events in the Middle East, 60% uh, uh, of Muslim identifiers identify as Labour. So, you know, the links between religion and politics are there. So on the one hand, so I can, I can understand two, two reasons as to why conservative MPs might be unhappy. One is why is somebody who's meant to be on our side, quote Absolutely. unquote, doing this? Or alternatively, hang on, the fact that somebody who does have a degree of influence over at least some of my voters is criticising is this something that we kind of have to worry about. But anyway, you and, can and, see why and there's is a tension. this sufficiently democratic, which is, of course, one of the great tensions in our, our system. And the, this sort of rather strange, I mean, we could, we could spend 
multiple episodes talking about some of what appear to be internal contradictions of Christianity, but it's not our specialist <laughs> subject. But the sort of link between non-Anglican religions and adherence to the Labour Party yes. and, and the question of how much that's about them being a minority within the country and therefore less likely to vote for what has been sort of thought of as the establishment party. Well, if you go back a bit further, of course, the link used to be with non-conformism with the Liberal Party. Absolutely. Right, yeah. OK. Um, uh, in particularly the Methodist Church, but now the Methodist Church in particular has gone in substantial decline, a bit like, a bit like the Liberal Democrats. As has the Liberals. Um, There's no Liberal Party anymore. <laughs> um, but um, certainly the, the, that link between Catholicism and Labour is there. It's also there in Scotland. It's still there. And, I mean, of course, in part, it's to do with the fact that uh, a, a, a considerable portion of our, our Catholic identifiers have some kind of Irish background, and it's the association of the Conservative Party with unionism, etc., etc., which, again, is also part of the story. And some of that identity remains. I'm fascinated that in this era of religious decline, where people are not going to church, they're not going to mass, Celtic and Rangers remained entirely divided on religious and cultural lines. And as you said, there still remains some link between background religion and political adherence. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The other obvious question to ask ourselves, we've already kind of talked about the way in which, you know, Justin Welby in particular has sometimes articulated a, a distinctive view about public policy. Well, what, if anything, do those who do and don't have a religious identity, what are their attitudes towards uh, some of the issues of controversy? And obviously, one of the things we've already, we've already referred to this is that we, we often say is that, well, actually, people from a religious background following the fact that you know many many religion is uh, historically at least been doubtful about same sex relationships sex outside marriage women necessarily being heavily involved in the labor market etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, some of these debates are still are still getting played out uh, you know wh- how distinctive are attitudes now to what some of these issues well let, let's just take one i mean Here's a subject on which, you know, we've talked about, I think, back in our first podcast. We've seen as a society a dramatic change in attitudes towards same-sex relationships, okay? But what, where do those who have a, a sense of identity stand? Well, amongst those, no religious identity, 81% say same-sex relationships, you know, not, nothing wrong at all. Amongst Anglicans and Catholics, it's just over a half who say that view. So it's definitely lower, but on the other hand, 
It's also the case that over half of people who at least identify with those churches, don't necessarily always turn up, don't actually follow anymore what at least is currently still the teaching of the churches, churches on this subject, although, of course, the Anglican, well, the, the Scottish Episcopal Church, which I happen to know about, is, already does same-sex relationships, and that, that's all now ancient history. But the Church of England is still going through this debate. But amongst non, those who adhere to a non-Christian religion, it's still only 35% who take the view that there's nothing wrong at all. So um, there's this uh, broad relationship. So I think, you know, on the one hand, it seems fairly clear that those of religious persuasion, for the most part, have been influenced by the wider change of attitudes in our society. But, but on this and maybe on one or two other issues we might want to talk about, they are still, relatively speaking, more conservative. rather more conservative. And I think we discussed in a previous episode uh, the stat that London is the most homophobic part of the UK, which always surprises people, but it's because you have far more people who are not Christian but are religious. Exactly. Or perhaps they might be evangelical who tend to be much more conservative on questions of same-sex marriage. Yeah. But also, and I think this is even more interesting on questions of the role of women and separately on abortion because the the sort of huge shift that's happened at the same period as decline in religion is the total transformation in the role of women in the labor market but yeah. also the ability of women to control whether they have children yeah. how many children they have through contraception and and yeah. there is a lot of debate about whether the former um the uh, emancipation of women has in part driven the decline in religious adherence because religion has historically played a huge role in explaining the role of women. Um, but the women are still more likely children, to identify as the men. But which anyway, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, yes, I mean, again, uh, you know, it, it's it's an interesting case of asking yourself whether the glass is half full or half empty. Of course, I mean, the argument about contraception inside the Catholic Church has been going on since the 1960s. And, I, you know, I think it's pretty clear um, that m most Catholics do not uh, follow uh, the teaching of the Catholic Church. <laughs> they with don't respect talk about to, it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but, I mean, perhaps I'm on a more uh, a controversial subject, which certainly still does divide Catholics. But, again, it's a question of, you know, wh 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 whether you're surprised whether the number is too low or too high. 58% um, of people who identify as Catholics uh, accept that women should have the right to have an abortion if they don't want to have the child, which is essentially as close as you get to it's a woman's right to choose. Now, that's still lower than, you know, 84% amongst those who don't have an identity. But even on this subject, Catholic identifiers do not necessarily follow what is the, the, the teaching of their church. So again, you can see how the broader changes of attitudes in society are being reflected amongst those who do. I mean, and again, this is not this is not a uniquely Catholic phenomenon, is it, John? I mean, other religions also tend to be more conservative about questions like abortion. Sure, but 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 it, but, but but again, all the principal groups in 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 Britain, you have a majority of people, or who at least who identify now saying that, yes, women should have the right to have an abortion uh, if they want one. Um, I mean, on the, on the role of women, which you, which you mentioned, I mean, I, I mean you know, there, there is still a degree of concern. There. So if we take, as it were, the, 
I mean, I mean, we've been talking about a lot about the 1950s today. So let's have another 1950s statement. It's the it's the man's job to go out and earn the money, and the woman's Absolutely. job to stay at home and to look after family. Which, of course, was pretty much public policy in the 1950s too, as women were thrown out, thrown out of the post-war labour market. Um, amongst those who attend a uh, religious service once a week. Um, 26% still agree with that proposition, whereas it's only 6% amongst those who don't identify. But, you know, it's only 26%. But again, uh, uh, interesting contrast. Um, 36% of those who identify as Muslim say that the woman should be at home. So you can see how an issue which, you know, is at the moment quite considerable controversy about the way that Muslims treat women, and particularly women who want to go out to work. And we've seen a lot of this debate particularly play out in Afghanistan and Iran. You know, there is an element also of this debate to be found uh, within the Muslim community uh, within the UK. And again, another proposition, you know, which is kind of the opposite. Men and women have an equal responsibility to going out and earning income. I mean, again, those who are religiously practicing, somewhat less likely to agree with that proposition, although the difference is not that great. But again, amongst Muslims, you know, it's only a ha- just over a half of them who say, who agree with that proposition, whereas, you know, even amongst Anglicans, Catholics, you know, it's, it's around three quarters. So um, certainly, um, again, we're looking at a society where, at least within the Christian groups, the secularization of society has clearly influenced the group. But again, some of our more minority religions, uh, there, there is still some distinctive standing out. Um, we should perhaps, by the way, I mean, given all the, the comments that have been made about, we made earlier about uh, uh, the um, Anglican Church and about immigration, is that actually it's not entirely clear that Justin Welby was necessarily talking for his flock. Absolutely. That's why it makes everyone so cross. Um, well, not everyone. Well, so, be, 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 because, because the truth is, I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, that, that has happened in our society actually over the last 10 years is that we've become much more likely to think that immigration is good for both our economy and our culture. And a majority of people now tend uh, to articulate uh, that uh, view. But the, amongst Anglicans, the figure is only 34%, both on the economy and on culture, whereas, you know, I said, the majority of us uh, think it is good for us. Uh, though, of course, here, Muslims are not socially conservative. Muslims are inclined to think that immigration is relatively uh, good for our society. So, uh, of course, Anglicans tend to be older, um, as well as being more likely to be conservative, so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. But you can certainly see here an example of perhaps a bit of a difference between uh, the clergy, at least as epitomised by the Archbishop and the broader uh, Anglican uh, uh, community. Uh, I feel like this has not been a terribly festive episode. So I- I'm going to put you on the spot because last week I tried to get you to be glass half full and I failed miserably. <laughs> as we go into Christmas, is there anything about values, people's belief in what we kind of think of as Christian values and and the role of Christmas that has remained, or do we not know? So, although most of us do not any longer particularly adhere to a religion, one of the things that uh, most religions would espouse, which is the need to look after the help those who are less well off than you, less fortunate than you, are in difficulty, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, etc., etc. 
we still tend to think of Christmas as a time to give to charity. I don't know about you, but certainly I've got loads and loads of requests for charitable uh, donations uh, coming through our door at this time of the year. Um, charity Christmas cards, of course, are yep. now quite widespread. So I think certainly one thing that probably most religions would say is important and which is perhaps a, a cult, broader cultural value that is still part of our society is the value of charitable giving yeah. and that that is something which is um, engaged in rather more at this time of the year. So uh, people uh, may not go to church, but they perhaps still think about their fellow citizens to a somewhat greater degree than in the past. That's it from Trendy for this week and indeed for 2023. We do, of course, need to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Before we go, I've got some really exciting news for you, which is that we will be back in the new year with Series 2 of Trendy starting on January 11th. And of course, next year is a really big year. There are elections in lots of places, including almost undoubtedly United Kingdom, United States. Lots of politics to talk about, but of course we won't just talk about politics during the course of next year. We'll also be trying to talk about some of the ways in which Britain and the rest of the world has changed, which will help to explain some of the politics uh, that's happening. Do email us in the meantime with any thoughts or questions you might have. Trendy at tortoisemedia.com, although I will be trying to switch off my phone for at least a few days over Christmas. And a reminder that Trendy is now available on Tortoise News, which is where you can also listen to the news meeting and Tortoise's daily sensemaker. Search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts. Have a wonderful Christmas and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.